Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Oeuvre, the sixth age of Steven Spielberg, which you so presciently titled, uh, what, two years ago now? <laughs> uh, the Struggle for Artistic Identity, a.k.a. Who am I? I am feeling the fatigue of this series. I kind of feel like Spielberg was feeling some artistic fatigue at this point in his career, right? He was feeling, yeah, the fatigue of old age, fatigue of his career... So this age, six age, this spans from 2008 to 2012. And it's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, The Adventures of Tintin, War Horse, and Lincoln. All right? So those are the four movies that we're going to talk about today uh, encapsulating the sixth age. This is all arbitrary. We made this stuff up. Matt yeah, made this up. I like it, though. It's all, yeah. it's all good uh, signposting. You know? It's great signposting. It kind of makes sense. So Benchmarking. Let, let, let's move back a second and see where we're coming from. The Fifth Age was a five-movie period over the course of you know four years, basically. And it was a creatively vibrant, a very sort of diverse set of movies. Maybe his angriest period, Angry, I would say. Sexiest. Sexy. I mean, <laughs> there, there's different genres at play here. So it was Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, Terminal, War of the Worlds, and Munich. Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, both came out in 2002. War of the Worlds, Munich, both came out in 2005. This guy was rocking and hard, firing all cylinders, prolific, all that shit. So, he takes a three-year break after Munich. Well-deserved. Very much so. We can agree on that. And he comes back with the fourth installment in the Indiana Jones series, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. 19 years after... Last Crusade, right? Yeah. That sounds right. 19 years? Is that true? 1989 to 2008. Yeah, that sounds about right. 18 years, yeah. That's good math. Good on the fly math. <laughs> no, let me not, tell you. For a man not known for his math. <laughs> well, I'd like to tell you that I just can't, I just sort of knocked that out right now, but I actually knew that statistic. That statistic just burned into my brain for some reason, because in 2008, that just it was coming up a lot. Wow, it's been 19 years since Last Crusade. Here's the thing with Spielberg, if you're looking at his career, which is what we're doing. Uh, he rarely has... This long of a break between films. Mm -hmm. He rarely has multiple bad movies in a row, multiple flops in a row, and he rarely has, he never has a trio of bad movies in a row. 
That's true. Yeah, he, he, he usually he's pretty good about bouncing back yeah. from flops, right? So, well, Quote-unquote flops. Again, the guy doesn't make flops, but he has made some bad well, moves. Go, so after 1941, you get Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. After Always, you get Last Crusade. After Hook, you get the one-two punch of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. After Lost World, you get the one-two punch of Amistad and Saving Private Ryan. Sure. Right? So those are all very strong bounce backs after sort of hiccups in his career. <laughs> sure. Right? Munich takes a three-year break. Here's what happens after Spielberg takes breaks. <laughs> right? <laughs> I've been crunching the numbers here, man. I love it. Let's hear it. <laughs> after Schindler's List takes a four-year break. Another deserved break. Yes. That was a crazy year. Yes. Comes back with potentially his worst movie, The Lost World. Yes. All right? Agreed. Saving Private Ryan, three-year break, comes back with AI. Although, I would argue, that wasn't really a break, because he started the next year on the screenplay. So he was more involved with the pre-production of AI than right. he had been for other films. So he's still working. Yes, right? gotcha. Um, after Munich, three-year break, comes back with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes. After Crystal Skull, three-year break, comes back with Tintin. Interesting. So you're saying the longer he goes between films, the more he loses his fastball. Which is why he's so prolific, probably. He knows this. He knows he gets rusty. Got it. So he's just got to keep working. More than anybody else, although, you know, we're going to talk about Clint Eastwood here later today, actually. And um, more than any of the directors I can think of, he is able, just because of his access to resources and because he's hungry and motivated, like you're saying, he's able to knock off multiple films in a year. Soderbergh's another guy who can do it, but... Spielberg is uniquely situated to be able to knock off multiple movies in a year. Sometimes juggling, move you know different films simultaneously, yes. basically making the post while finishing post on Ready Player One, for example, famously, right? Yeah. So some of his best films have come out of his double film years, right? Indeed. This is not one of those examples. Not an example <laughs> at all. But I do like I do like this theory that the guy the the busier he stays and the more he's willing to crank these things out. Maybe it also means that his best films come out of his tightest schedules and some of his most modest budgets as well. Because this is one of his, this might be his highest budgeted. $185 million might be the most expensive, maybe at least up to Ready Player One. I think Ready Player One was a $200 million movie. Yeah, that sounds right. Although, Ready Player One is so contingent on only CGI, it might be a little less. I, I mean, I, I... I wouldn't be surprised. If, so, you're saying Crystal Skulls is number one. I think, I think at this point in his career, definitely the most expensive film he had directed. Okay, that's, I think that's, that's probably fair. Right. Piggybacking on your, on your earlier point, not only can he, is he uniquely situated, situated to make multiple movies in a year, he can also, at the snap of a finger... Get something greenlit. Get something greenlit and into production quickly. And we'll get to that. I mean, War Horse is a crazy example of it. The dude sees the play in London, mm-hmm. the War Horse play in London... And within six months, he's shooting. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. And so he, he commissions the screenplay, gets everything going, gets it rolling, gets uh, calls up Kathleen Kennedy or whatever. Yep. And they're and they're in production doing this huge budget, like beautiful period piece, period piece uh, shooting on location in England. Warhorse looks more expensive to me than Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, even though it's about $100 million less. <laughs> like, Warhorse is $66 million, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, $185 so let's get into the King of the Crystal Skull. And it's fucked up, but they really did pay to make it look less real, right? Because they were yeah. paying to not go on location anywhere. Yeah, very very famously, this film was mostly shot on a soundstage in Downey, California. Anybody who's ever been to Downey knows that you don't go there unless you're going straight to yeah. a sound. I mean, 
there's not much going on in Downey, uh, but they did have they did have a huge stage down there, so they built most of this film in that stage, huge green screen, obviously, and then a little bit of stuff in Hawaii. Yeah. So it was kind of Spielberg at a point in his career and in his life where he's like, I don't really want to have to go to Tunisia again. I don't want to have to literally go to South America. I like being home with my kids. I like hanging out in the pool. Yeah. Harrison Ford could fly to work if he wanted to. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so it feels very much like an older director deciding that he's not crazy about the idea of spending half the year abroad. We talked about this off mic the other day, but Spielberg seems to have been taken by surprise that people could come out and hate, and hate with a certain vitriol, (laughs) any Indiana Jones movie. So I, I think he thought no matter what they did, it was going to be seen as like a... Bulletproof? Yeah, bulletproof. Um, which is both sort of adorable in its naivete <laughs> and also just really frustrating that this you know nearly 70-year-old man doesn't have the understanding or wisdom to be like, what makes Indiana Jones Indiana Jones? And it's the fucking adventure. It's the National Geographic part of it. It's like being out in these places um, and having that adventure. And and just the whole green screen part of it is, uh, it was the biggest thing coming out of the movie that I I was talking about and thinking about. It's like, it looks so not like an Indiana Jones movie to me. And it looks like a fucking CGI fest uh, that it's, it's just, it's what created the hate from the from the fans, I think, more than anything. Sure, uh, it felt like a betrayal. I mean, there's that South Park episode where it's literally yes. about, uh, you know, raping our childhood, right? Right, Lucas and yeah. and Spielberg literally raping Indiana Jones. Yeah. So, <laughs> what's funny about Lucas's involvement with this, and I feel like he gets the brunt of the blame. Whereas I think Spielberg should take more blame for this movie, considering that it, he was complicit in all of this, right? And this is a badly directed action film. It's a, yeah. it's kind of a, uh, it, it's just formless and it's kind of lazy and it has no, it never finds a rhythm. So, but w- wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall when the bad reviews started coming in and Spielberg was probably just flabbergasted and, and you know whining to Lucas and being like, "Can you believe? Like, how can they not like this?" And Lucas is probably just sitting there laughing, yeah. like. You get used to it, buddy. Like, <laughs> welcome to the last. Welcome. You, you've been thirty old bitch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you welcome to the last ten years of my life. Um, so here's an interesting thing, though. This has a seventy-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and so I think more of the hate came in from the fans and trickled in later. I think if critics re-reviewed it, it would be way less. I think with something as as culturally important and significant as Indiana Jones, no, it's like important culturally, but like it's significant. It's a, it's it's been. Uh, it's been around for so long and been such an important part of people's childhoods that just seeing Indiana Jones back on the screen is going to put some sort of protective armor on these critics Absolutely. at the beginning. And, and that's why there's sort of a bunch of lukewarm positive reviews for it. Well, the prequels come... Uh, uh, Return of the Jedi is 83, and then Phantom Menace is 99, right? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so that's uh, 16 years. Mm-hmm. So this is almost as long as that. And I feel it like it doesn't seem as long. It seems shorter. Doesn't it does. It? it does. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out why that is exactly. And it just seems like this is something that they had been talking about for so long. Harrison Ford was always on board. Harrison Ford seems like always hated the idea of Star Wars. Wanted to dis- distance himself from yeah. Star Wars. Always wanted to kill the character off. Whereas he was always banging the drum for Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. I think he takes ownership of Indiana Jones yeah. as like that's his character. That's his guy. Yeah. More so than Jack Ryan or, or even Han Solo. 
uh, or even Rick Deckard for that matter. Mm-hmm. So, and now he is saying he really wants to make a fifth one. Like, I think Spielberg. They'll want to make Ford, up for it, I think, is what. Do you think that's what it is? Like, I'm trying to glean whether like or not it. Harrison Ford feels guilty. He, he, you know, he famously doesn't do interviews, doesn't care. Yeah. There's always a horrible interview when he goes on Letterman or whatever. <laughs> he's just stoned and he's out of it, and he never gives interesting answers. And when he shows up at award shows, he's just completely useless. <laughs> and so. I'm not surprised that he hasn't, you know, apologized for this or said he thinks it's a masterpiece or that he thinks it was a misstep. Because mm-hmm. it seems like Spielberg has sort of dipped his toe into a little bit of an apology or that he doesn't feel like it's one of his best. And then there was the whole Shia LaBeouf controversy where he ran his mouth about it. Yeah. And now those guys will never work together again. And he's certainly not coming back for the fifth one if it ever happens. Well, no one wants more mutt anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> there's so many things this movie does wrong, but it kind of stems from there, doesn't it? I remember going to see this on May 22nd, 2008. I was working on a film in Omaha, Nebraska, and we all dutifully went out to, I guess it would have May 21st, because it would have been the midnight show. And I couldn't have been more excited. Everybody was, you know, everybody was involved. The trailers looked great. Kate Blanchett as the villainous. And just, Karen Allen's back. Karen Allen's back. Like, this is all going to work. How can this not work? Yeah. You know? And pretty quickly, it became clear to me this was not going to work. I mean, nuking the fridge happens within the first 15 minutes of the movie, right? Even before that, it's just a fucking Something groaner. is wrong. Something's wrong. Something's it's, off. It's the, it's the gag with the anthill or termite hill or whatever. from The, the molehill, yeah. The molehill. The what, prairie dogs. Yeah, prairie dogs. Yeah. <laughs> termite hill, whatever. Well, there, there are some pretty big ants that show yeah, up. Yeah, there's <laughs> ants that show up later. Uh, the cheesiness of that opening, the fact that they sort of wink at us by showing us the art or whatever yeah. the old just Harrison Ford being old and doing action shit with his whip like they, yeah. they didn't need to make it so uh, stunt heavy at, the, at that point I don't know they're trying to recreate obviously the uh, the fun cold open set pieces from before but it just the magic is gone um, it's clearly not on location the follow up to jump the shark nuke the fridge nuking the fridge happens yeah. really quickly and we introduced the alien idea pretty early, yeah. and that's a pretty big red flag. Harrison Ford, it's not that he's not capable, and they do actually allude to the fact that he is clearly much older, and that is going to affect certain abilities, yes. but there's something about the filmmaking. Like, I just keep going back to the fact that this movie never finds any rhythm. Like The cutting pattern is weird. It has no forward momentum, no pizzazz. Like It's just missing... It's the soundstage stuff. Like it never used to be like yeah. that with the other ones. The look is off. You got Janusz Kaminski, God bless him, trying really hard to recreate Douglas Slocum's look because yeah. Douglas Slocum was obviously had been passed away for many years. Plus now Kaminski is even if Douglas Slocum was still alive, I bet you Kaminski still would have shot this movie. Sure. So it's it's weird because he's like trying to evoke a certain look and he's not quite nailing it. Like, it, this movie kind of just looks overlit would be the best, and we can go further into that when we get into War Horse, because that's a weird-looking movie, too. Yeah. But it just, it, there's just something off here. It's, it's marry, been reanimated. He's trying to marry the Indiana Jones aesthetic with this, like, American, all-American, 1950s, Cold War-type yeah. vibe. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't doesn't really work. I mean, it's it's almost like once we even get into town, and almost trying to make it Hill Valley or something from the 50s, right? Yeah. I... The one positive thing I'll say, but I'll, I'll try my best to just be ever so slightly positive. <laughs> I think the closest the movie gets to finding a rhythm or having a decent set piece is the greaser fight that goes into the motorcycle chase. Yeah. Like, there is something kind of novel about that. You can feel, feel Spielberg really kind of delighting in putting together another uh, fun little chase. And the fact that it goes to the library and it goes all over the campus... It's scratching at the surface of doing something fun, right? It's, it doesn't 
penetrate, yeah, but it's it's, <laughs> it's as close as it gets. It's close enough, I guess. Uh, the library thing, I think, is pretty stupid, but like the greaser fight is good. <laughs> like in the uh, what the soda shop or yeah, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's all fine. But like, like theoretically, do you have a problem with aliens being the thing in this one compared to biblical shit? I do, I do, and I know that that sounds a little bit petty. I, I can't put my finger on why I'm so adverse to aliens because I loved the biblical stuff. Yeah. And I loved, you know, all the totems and all the artifacts and all the idols. Like, for some reason, that, that all worked for me. And it was so, the supernatural stuff seemed very organically tied into all the biblical yeah. stuff. And this time around, Indiana Jones versus the Flying Saucers from Mars or whatever, which was, I think, one of the original titles of, like, what's his name? Dar- like, one of Frank Darabont's or yeah. one of M. Night Shyamalan's first yeah. cracks at this was about him. And I think it was Lucas's idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people sort of, like, point to Lucas as contributing the most to this. To, Lucas to the nuking the fridge. Lucas, yeah. Lucas, obviously, I mean, he made Star Wars. This guy obviously loves flying saucers, right? So he's committed to the idea of Indiana Jones at some point dealing with something, um, you know, science fiction adjacent. It doesn't work for me at all. Yeah, I mean, there's something a little more tangible and foreboding and, I don't know, it, it feels, obviously it's human, the sort of biblical stuff, even if it is supernatural. Sure. Um, earthbound. It's earthbound, yeah. So maybe that's it. But I'm with you, though. It's, it's something I can't really pinpoint, but it just doesn't feel right. However, I wonder if that's mostly execution. If it was, if this movie was a lot better done with a different script, with a different idea, if aliens were the thing, I think it's possible that it would have worked and we would have been converted. But uh, in this form, it certainly uh, is not going to work at all. No, it doesn't really ever find itself. It never justifies its own existence. And it's just, it's so mind-boggling to me how formless it is like every time I sit down to watch this movie I watched it again yesterday morning just to brush up because I wanted to be ready for this and every single time I sit down to watch this think to myself it can't possibly be as bad as I remember and every single time it's actually worse than I remember that's phenomenal in its own way like I don't know how they managed to fuck this up so royally and I know this sounds like just another fanboy you know whining about having his childhood raped or whatever it's just I don't care. It's I mean, just a it's misstep. Always, it's just yeah. It's 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 all soft edges. You know, yes. it's, it's like Indiana Jones in, in a bubble, right? It's like Bubble Boy Indiana Jones <laughs> going from soundstage to soundstage and pretending to be in the Amazon and just the jungle shit doesn't look right no. at all. No. That jungle chase, jeep chase Ugh. with all this shit is like if you compare that to the like the chase in. Raiders, it's just, it's depressing yes, to think about. It's, 100%. it's horrifying because they're very similar in concept, but holy shit, is it, uh, it's just embarrassing. Really. Well, it's trying to check all the Indiana Jones boxes, right? And insofar as it checks the boxes, I guess it's a success in that, like, it opens in media res and gives you the prologue, at, you know, the way these movies are supposed to in the in the James Bond vein, right? Yeah. It gives you the globe-trotting aspect where you actually get to see the map, you know, the line across the map. It has the chase scene. All of these movies need a chase. And then it has the creepy crawly stuff where, you know, it was the snakes in the first one. It was the bugs in the second one. It was the rats in the third one. And now we got the ants. Yeah. But they're CG ants and they look like CG ants. And they're so flubbery and uncanny valley situation happening with these stupid ants where I just am not buying any of it. And I'm not, this is not my theory. So I'm not going to put this across as something that I came up with. But it has been said that 
Steven Spielberg is much better about incorporating CG elements into a real environment as opposed to incorporating real people into a CG environment, right? That makes sense. So so much of this movie is just them literally standing against a green screen. Like the last 15 minutes at least is basically just one big green screen after another. Yeah, everything in the jungle and then everything. Yeah, for sure. And then culminating in the climactic shot the climactic moment where the saucer takes off it's literally an outline of in, of Harrison Ford's body standing in a green screen looking at nothing with just you know avatar in front of him right just a complete cg environment and it just doesn't feel right it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel uh, right authentic to this to this series yeah no it's an interesting point when you think about you know Jurassic Park yes war of the worlds well, I mean, we're going to talk about Avatar, or Avatar. <laughs> we're going to talk about Tintin here Tintin in a second, yeah. which is his first, his first foray into something just completely animated, mm-hmm. and obviously we'll have our opinions about that. But yeah, I mean, if he goes too far into this stuff, he gets lost in the jungle, for yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah. People to blame here. George, George <laughs> Lucas is up there, of course. Yep. David Kep, one mm-hmm. of our typical whipping boys, yes. who I think for fuck's sake is is doing the fifth one too, right? Probably. Didn't they announce that? Probably. Oh, why does everyone... There needs to be an in-depth study, and I looked for this. There, one doesn't exist. There needs to be an investigative report <laughs> on why David Kep is such an it boy. Why people love him. Is he is just like, he's fast? Yeah. He gets along with everybody? Yeah. He hits the beats? Is he good at writing action? Like, what? what is it about David Kep? Probably a little bit of each one of those categories yeah. you just mentioned. He must be just a charming-ass motherfucker. He must be, like, <laughs> the nicest guy ever. I mean, we've, we've, we've confirmed before that there, David Kep... I mean, he has written good things. He's, written, he's definitely written good things. Decent things, at least. He directed Premium Rush. <laughs> True. He'll always have that. <laughs> JGL's best performance, maybe? We'll talk about JGL here in a few minutes. I mean, I don't think that this guy is just a total dipshit, but I, it is interesting how often he tends to come up in these lesser Spielberg films, because he's responsible for The Lost World as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and the uh, first Jurassic Park. Yes, yeah. that, so it goes both ways. Right. Um, it's interesting that you know you mentioned M. Night Shyamalan took a crack at this. Frank Darabont took a crack at it. I would like to see that movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, I did see that the nuking the fridge has been in there since the beginning, and it also that might be like a Lucas. Seems uh, like a real Lucas thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you subscribe to nuking the fridge being, I mean, is it as bad to you? Is it as egregious to you? Is it the most egregious thing? It's in not the, the most egregious thing okay. in the movie. It's no. pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's pretty dumb. It's just me. It's it's setting a precedent that like, oh, gravity doesn't matter. Velocity doesn't matter. It's just, it's breaking all these rules of, I mean, and, and okay, this is coming from a series that has like supernatural ghosts and things, <laughs> but it is just breaking certain physical laws that I just kind of can't forget. Yeah, and that doesn't happen in any of the other movies exactly. at all. Exactly. Be- besides the the very specific supernatural shit. Yes, and if you put 35-year-old Harrison Ford into a fridge and sent him flying through the air, I still would have a hard time believing that he would emerge relatively unscathed. But you're putting a 70-year-old man in this fucking fridge and sending him for miles. I mean, and it's yeah. not like it's an insulated fridge. I just, you know, it's not like a guy going over... <laughs> Going over yeah. Niagara Falls in a barrel. I mean, yeah. you're literally sending this guy off in something. How is every bone in his body not broken when he touches down? What if instead of getting in the fridge, he just gets horrible radiation poisoning, and then we have like a Breaking Bad situation where he's slowly deteriorating and dying, and he has to go on one last mission. Everyone gets their way. Indiana Jones dies. Harrison Ford can say goodbye. Maybe this entire film from when the nuclear explosion happens is like his fever dream Ooh. of like his own death. Okay. Like maybe everything in the in the last, you know, hour and forty five minutes of this movie is actually him just hallucinating on on, on his deathbed. Okay. All this crystal skull bullshit. I like that. So maybe the next one is a prequel 
to Crystal Skull. I mean, I want to see I want to see the movie where he and Ray Winstone, who is horribly horribly cartoonish character in this movie, is absolutely ridiculous. He's a turn. He's what is at one point they even like call him out and yes. they say, "What are you? You're a triple agent yeah, or something?" He, yeah, it goes back and forth. It doesn't make any sense. God, it's a terrible anymore. character. But I would be interested in seeing their adventures. You know their young Indiana Jones style adventures in World War II, you know, sure. uh, working for the CIA or whatever, yeah, the yeah. OSS. So would you be interested in seeing a, not Chris Pratt, who's obviously been somebody who's floated in the past, would you be interested in seeing a, I don't know, Ryan Gosling, young Indiana Jones situation? It would need to be a prequel for things that happened between the young Indiana Jones series and Raiders of the Lost, or and Temple of Doom, which is the oldest yeah. real Indiana Jones movie, right? I No, I wouldn't be interested in Or seeing, seeing a Harrison Ford starring... <laughs> film that took place in like the late 40s during world war ii where he's de-aged you know <laughs> like like marvel you yeah. know like uh, ant-man style i would be more interested in that okay i think I'd as be more opposed interested. to indiana jones 5 which stars 77 year old harrison ford and obviously not opposed i want to see the 70s I, I think it can be done with the old with the old guy right like it doesn't have to be as action-packed as before or whatever like there are ways to make this yeah good and exciting you know it sounds like we're gonna get it and at this point I'm fine with that because I feel like all right. Well, we've already we've already fucked this up. Yeah. Now I'm just interested, you know, from the, like the the novel standpoint. See if there's redemption there. Like, and from what I've seen from Spielberg, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, but it does seem he is aware that a big part of the failings for this one was the not going on location, was the green screen sure. stuff. And if that's what he tells himself, at least we'll get that out of the way, and that will be redeemed in the next one. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't have high hopes for the fifth one. I'm, I'm glad they're going to give it a go and see if they can do a little better. But uh, I remember coming out of the theater being like, okay, I guess that was whatever, but I just wanted to see Indiana Jones again. And yeah. uh, upon rewatch, it is just fucking brutally awful. Yeah, it is very, it is, like, shockingly, surreally similar to the feeling of coming out of Phantom Menace. Yeah. You're like, what did I... There's no way that was as bad. Like, that must have just been a fluke, right? That must have just been not the right mood or something. And then the more you watch, the more you realize, no, it's even worse than you thought it was. Yeah. Um, It's it's sort of, you know, I think this and The Lost World and Spielberg's oeuvre are very similar movies just in terms of like the my reaction to them and they probably are his two worst movies we're gonna rank them here in a couple episodes yeah. this, is, this is right down there for me it's gotta be it's it's as just formless and guileless of a spielberg as a film as he's ever made yeah uh, it has zero rewatchability do you think do you think if you could imagine a world where you can men in black yourself and this is like you have no idea what indiana jones is or whatever and you saw this movie like devoid in a vacuum do you think it'd be as bad, or do you think it'd be worse? I still think it'd be pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, if you if you saw this, didn't know that there was three movies that came before this, I don't think I'd be interested in watching those films. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like, think it'd probably be worse, even. Yeah. I mean, I have heard from some critics who don't consider Indiana Jones to be an important part of their childhood, for, for whom that trilogy is not an important, like, formative part sure. of their life as a cinephile. And they like this movie a lot more than we do, for example. Really? Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. So I think there is something to that, that if you don't mythologize this character, you can just sort of like take this movie with a grain of salt and be like, yeah, it's fine. It's like mm-hmm. Lost World level fine. It's competent. There's some fun stuff going on in it. Yeah. I just don't find it to be that at all. Like Hook, I think, is just, it's so wacky. I kind of never get tired of rewatching that movie. Like, it's such a train wreck. Yeah. And there's so many, it's just such a unprecedented, surreal exercise <laughs> That I'm more than happy to sort of like hate watch that movie well, over Hook, and over. Yeah, Hook has a lot going for it in, in that vein. But also, like, the first act is really good. There's 
sequences in the movie that are legitimately good. Yeah. And there are other sequences that are legitimately fun to watch. Yeah. But, you know, obviously it's, it's a train wreck as well. Yeah. There's nothing fun in no. this movie at that's, all. That's, yeah, it's not fun bad. Mm-hmm. It's not wacky, fun, let's get together and get drunk. It's, and just, it's just a downer from the movie. It really is. And that's how Lost World made me feel as well. All right, so he does Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and... Probably in shame, he says, fuck, I can't do anything for a while now. I need to go hang out with my 12 kids. <laughs> and then he gets to work on Tintin, which is a bizarre animated mocap adventure that he and Peter Jackson co-produced. And the idea was that Spielberg was going to direct one and then Peter Jackson was going to direct another one. I think that's still on the table. And then they, I think they were going to co-direct the third one. Yeah. They had an idea for it. I think they had three books, mm-hmm. the three graphic novels mapped out as what they wanted to do. Yeah. Did you hear about Peter Jackson sort of weaseling his way into this no. when he found out that Spielberg... Apparently Spielberg had like bought the rights yeah. to Tintin in the 80s, like right after Raiders. Oh, wow. Like he's owned this thing since since the 1980s. And he keeps trying to make it. He was going to do a live action for a while, and Jack Nicholson was going to play uh, Captain Haddock, and yada, yada. So finally Spielberg is like, you know, maybe this is animated. Maybe we're going to try... Maybe it's still... Is it Jamie Bell? Who is it? Yada, yada. Thomas Sankster from uh, Love Actually and um, uh, Game of Thrones. Okay. He was cast for a while. Huh. Anyway, so Peter Jackson gets wind that this is happening. And so he, he, he shoots a test of himself playing Captain Haddock and does a whole mocap because this is post King Kong, right? This is obviously after Lord of the Rings. I think it's after King Kong, at least. It would have to be, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, King Kong was 2005, I think, and this is 2011. Anyway, he's got Weta working. He's got all this stuff going on. He's got all these projects. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's the new, he's the new James Cameron insofar as he has the, he now has this special effects stable working for him. So he does a test and he plays Captain Haddock, and he sends Spielberg the test. And at the end of the test, it's him saying, "Hey, why don't you let Weta do the special effects for this movie?" <laughs> so it's basically his pitch, right? Yeah. And so, long story short, they kind of get into bed together, and it's kind of a match made in heaven. That seems like they have nothing but great things to say about each other. Yeah. Had a great experience making the film. Seems like this movie was kind of a breeze and kind of a pleasure, and is exactly what they hoped it would be. The problem is, I don't think there's an audience for this movie. And I don't think this movie well, you, knows you who its think audience the, is. The Herge devotees across the <laughs> world weren't uh, weren't super stoked on this movie. I mean, I have this question in my notes here. I, I find there's a recurring question throughout the films in this series: Who is this movie for? Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> and this is a great example of that. Who is this movie for? This movie is not a disaster. It's not incompetent. But I rarely have cause to revisit it. And I find it to be one of his most baffling and boring films. The the biggest thing I can say of this movie is it's fucking boring. It's a boring movie for what it should be. So yeah, this movie made three hundred seventy four million, right? Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. But when you consider it's a Spielberg Peter Jackson team up of a with an animated movie for a kids movie, mm-hmm. that should be dynamite. That should be a billion dollar movie at this coming point, out right? of Christmas time. Yes, it should be, and it's not. Nope, and it's so not that we may they may never do. They might not do The next Tintin. He had done, I think, you know, probably dipped his toe into a little bit of this mocap stuff, but certainly not on this level. Mm -hmm. And it is the first film he has directorial credit for that is 100% animated. Yeah. And you can tell that he is somewhat, he he feels a little bit liberated by the fact that now there's literally nothing he can't do. The camera can move anywhere, do anything. And there is one great scene, which everybody agrees is the best scene in the movie, where it's really Mm -hmm. him flexing 
what he does best mm. with this brand new toy, right? Yeah. I and mean, he literally in, can in do in Morocco it. the whole chase scene yes. with the dam and the house falling down the hill yeah. and all that shit. Yeah, it feels like it, it. It feels it's as close as the movie ever gets to something like Raiders. Mm-hmm. It's the it's as close as the movie gets to being kind of transcendent. Yeah, and uh, and it's far and away the most fun. It's the only thing that I've like revisited. Uh, from this movie, independent of the entire film. It's the only thing that's fun about the movie in general. Going back, do you find this to be some weird, uncanny valley shit throughout the movie at all? Or is it, it doesn't bother you? It doesn't bother me as much as it should. Yeah. And and by that I mean that I think they do lean into the cartoonishness of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're obviously trying to recreate the Herge. That's how you pronounce it, right? Herge? Herge? Herge! Herge! The Belgian, gay. The Belgian I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is, writer and uh, illustrator <laughs> who created this series, obviously, and uh, racist too. Fair enough, and has very confusing thoughts about alcoholism. <laughs> and anyway, the movie is kind of like leaning into the cartoonishness of it. Maybe not as much as I would like. Yeah. I would think they could go further with it, but they're trying to find this weird balance. Luckily, they go far enough. That it's not waxy uh, polar bear, polar bear, polar express stuff. Right? Yeah, polar, polar express is the ultimate uncanny valley, like uncomfortable weirdness. Right. I'm kind of with you. Like I, I don't think it ever gets that weird. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the animation is really cool and looks yeah. great. But I wonder. So it only took him about 36 days to film. Okay. Which makes sense if you're yeah. just doing mocap. Sure. You're just doing it on a soundstage. Um, a lot longer to animate. Yes. Which sort of, I, I think he... Years, probably, yeah, right? I think it was like two years of, of animation was sort of... So, he, you know, he, he basically filmed this almost right after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Right. The wait a couple of years, and that's why two movies of his came out in 2011. But I wonder if the animation ended up being so expensive that they sort of refused to edit down the movie in places that it needed to, to be edited down. I've heard of that phenomenon before. <laughs> yeah. Because it is... Uh, Patton Oswalt tells this story when he talks about working on... Uh, not Ratatouille, but when he was doing, like, a punch-up yeah. for, like, DreamWorks and like, stuff. We, we can't get rid of it because we spent so much time exactly. on it. So we just got an ADR something in or whatever. Exactly. Right? Which he's like, I used to... They just would hire me to just come in and write, like, off-screen dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> And he said it was a crazy way to make movies, but they paid you know they paid me really well for it. So yeah. what was I gotta do? Say no, I'm a stand-up comedian. So I think you're exactly right. I think this movie could be tighter, thriftier. Yeah. But yeah, they spent all this money on this stuff and all this mocap and sort of like pushing the technology that they're like, you know, standing back and like, isn't this? I mean, I'm sure they thought it was a masterpiece when they looked, stood back and looked at it, right? Because they knew what went into it. Yeah, they knew. And they what... had seen it from script to mocap stage to screen. Yeah. They're probably like this is gonna blow people's minds yeah yeah they spent you know 14 months working on the uh perfect architecture of this freighter ship or whatever they're not going to cut out the 20 minutes they needed to cut out because from once he leaves uh he's in paris right yeah it's france at least okay sure isn't it well it's belgium isn't her hair belgian he is belgian but it could be in brussels or uh bruges look parisian it's probably in paris doesn't matter doesn't matter who gives a shit (laughs) fuck this um but anyway from there there's like 45, 50, 55 minutes between uh, when they're in uh, some random European city and when they get to uh, the sort of set piece in Morocco. And most of that's on this freighter in the sea. Yep. And it's pure drudgery. Yeah. It is, it is, uh, it's not very action packed. Uh, there's a lot of just sort of random business of him going around the ship to places he needs to yeah. get to. Finding keys Finding, to various. It's yeah. very video gamey. Yeah, it's very like a point and click video gamey yes. or whatever. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's your enjoyment of all this stuff is 100% contingent on if you find Andy Circus's alcoholism. <laughs> 
adorable, right? <laughs> yes. And the movie really leans, which I'm sure comes straight from the book, yeah. but it really leans into that. And if you need to find his just buffoonery burping alcohol fumes into the biplanes, you know, gas tank, if you find that adorable, this is the movie for you. I mean, we were talking about this earlier, but it is such a weird message they're sending or alcohol sort of his like Popeye's spinach yes, yes, almost 100%, in a way. Yes. But also it's sort of like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde werewolf thing where like his sober self and his alcoholic self don't remember each other's actions right. in any sort of way. Which is, there's some science to that, I suppose, and that's they, they've done studies where, you know, they'll get somebody drunk and then have them read something yeah. or have them experience, you know, watch something or whatever, and then you, they only actually have recall of it. They don't have recall when they're sober, but they do have recall the next time they get drunk. Okay. Which sounds like a very unhealthy study, to yes, be sure. But, but I'm not saying this movie is a treatise on, yeah. <laughs> on and, alcoholism. And, and like, sort of this funny stuff would be fine, but good God do they focus on it yeah. for at length in this movie. Yeah. And there's even a scene where he's like, there's a big part of the movie once they get ashore where he's like sobering up and they have to deal with that for a long time too yeah and i don't know it's, it's just not that interesting of a character and uh tintin himself is not that interesting very yeah. sort of like i don't know asexual little yeah. boy robotic and for someone who's supposed to be like this investigator right this detective kid yeah there's not a lot of good investigation going on no the beginning the, the movie is uh, set off by him happening upon this ship in a market like there's no real reason for any of this to get going in any way right yeah uh which is kind of frustrating story-wise and yeah it's sort of weird for someone like edgar wright or joe Cornish, who we assume are you know good screenwriters it is cool i do give spielberg some credit for like being savvy about this kind of stuff of like in the mid-2000s being like oh these these guys are hot right and yeah. we got, uh, you know, we got the Cor- the Cornetto trilogy, and we've got Attack the Block, and Stephen Moffat, and yeah. everything he's doing on the stage. Like Spielberg is obviously very savvy about these things. And Nick Frost and Simon Pegg are going to be the two. That's all dudes. cool. Yeah. Like that's all that movie. They give this movie a lot of cred, so I will give him um, cred for that. <laughs> but it is, I, I'm, I'm assuming these guys are just sticking very close to the text. I'm presuming that these yes. guys aren't trying to reinvent the wheel. This movie is sort of a, an experiment, so they're probably like, you know what? Let's just make this, let's just do like a straight across adaptation. Let's not get cute about this yeah. because we're basically inventing a lot of it. We're going to have to invent a lot of this stuff on set. So we don't want to overcomplicate things uh, narratively, right? Sure. So, I, that, that makes sense. Keep things simple just in case post gets messy. Yeah. Right. So I don't really want to give them too much blame for how boring the movie is. I think they do a perfectly fine job of keeping things moving forward. But I presume that the biggest issues we have with this come straight out of Herge's text. Sure. Um, there is a really kind of fun and sort of visually inventive scene where the movie sort of sparks to life for a second where he's get they get him drunk so that he can remember what happened when these two ships clashed. Yeah, these two pirate ships clashed, right? For sure. That's really fun. And you see Spielberg really enjoying like finding all these fun ways to transition, like using animation to transition between these temporalities in ways that he couldn't do in live action. And that's like, oh, the movie like comes to life for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it has one of the most sort of just like boring and uninspired climactic action set pieces of any Indiana Jones movie. Um, Indiana Jones movie, any Spielberg movie. It's like it's like the cliche action movie ending, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like two cranes fighting with each other, yeah, right? It's like yeah, on the docks. Yeah, it's like it's, or it's like taking you know, it's like Ripley getting into the mecha suit at the end of Aliens, right? It's like these yeah. guys, machines that become the personifications of these guys. Right? They're basically having a sword fight mm-hmm. with these two cranes. Yeah, uh, and that kind of brings me to Daniel Craig, who plays the villain in this movie. 
Daniel Craig is great in this movie, and yet he's also kind of completely miscast at the same time. It's like he makes it work, but he's totally wrong for this part, right? I honestly didn't remember it was Daniel Craig until after the movie. Really? To the Wikipedia page. Yeah. So it, it, it's yeah. mostly just an underwritten villain. Yes. He's trying to make it work. He's he's really... I mean, you don't get to see Daniel Craig play many villains, no, which yeah. is kind of fun. Yeah. But I find him unbelievably miscast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're flying high on the circus train at this point, so everybody's very excited about Andy, Sir, Andy Circus, and so and obviously the Peter Jackson connection. I totally understand why mm-hmm. they would put him in this role. And then you get Jamie Bell, who's... I mean, this is kind of, unfortunately his thing right he is a he's completely kind of vanilla <laughs> competent yeah. but relatively forgettable actor i mean he's wonderful in billy elliot of course he's mm-hmm. pretty good in uh, king kong yeah but he doesn't really bring much to the table besides just competence yeah but that's exactly what they're looking for for this character it's a, it's a bland character it's a very bland character in the interviews and reading about it, you see that Spielberg and Peter Jackson both claim to be like big Tintin fans. Obviously, Peter Jackson bought the rights. Mm-hmm. Spielberg did, yeah. Spielberg, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a weird thing to be an adult who's a Tintin fan, isn't it? These guys have they live a life that's relatively infantilized, I will say. You know, I comic guess. books and Lord of the Rings. And, yeah, I, you know, I guess I can't. These guys are living in a perpetual and, fantasy. Pick and choose or whatever. I mean, I have Calvin and Hobbes on the <laughs> table, but Tintin is is very childish. And I remember even when I, you know, we had him in school when we were like 10, 11, 12, and I thought they were kind of cool then, but I don't know. It, it's watered down I, 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 graphic novels. Yeah, I mean, it's what you said earlier. Like, who is this for? Yeah. Um, and so it's an odd choice, but kind of a weird, cool choice, I guess. But uh, You know I mean, who this movie is for? Who? This movie is for Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. There's something Just really masturbatory about this right. exercise. So, you know, they, they got to a place, they made enough money uh, in their careers and made enough money for studios that they can just do whatever the fuck they want. And yeah. if they had fun doing it as just a little exercise, good for them. And still made money. If they wanted to make this 90-minute video game cutscene, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, good for them. It's not wacky enough to be a true like animated fantasy, but it's not tactile enough to be a legitimate like grounded action film. Yes. So it exists in this weird nether region mm-hmm. uh, that kind of wants to be Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it also kind of wants to be Aladdin at the yeah. same time, and it just never manages to sort of like stake its own personality. Yeah, and the narrative, yeah, it's the narrative. So like, I have no issue with the animation, with the direction. There's a lot of cool shit going on, but, you know, it's the story, it's the narrative, it's the script that I have a lot of issues with. The one scene, I don't think it redeems it entirely, but the one scene is fantastic in Morocco. Yeah. Uh, the one chase scene. Um, just reminds you, like, what he's yeah. what he's capable. Like, when he really turns it on, mm-hmm. there's just, there's nobody, you know, nobody does it better. Put a gun to my head, I say, yeah, this is not a good movie. This is like a bad movie. I mean, mm-hmm. there are redeeming qualities. There, the movie looks cool. The animation's good. It's not a good movie. No. I mean, would you consider it? No, I wouldn't consider it a good movie. It's a thumbs it's lesser. down. It's, it's a, a lesser. Down. Yeah, 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 for sure. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It's a, it's a novelty. You know, it's just yeah. like it's an outlier. Yeah, it's a weird. Yeah, it's an oddity in his filmography. It's certainly one of his lesser films. All right, so this leads me back to the top here. King of the Crystal Skull, Tintin, back to back, worst. Back to back in Spielberg's oeuvre. That's gotta be. They gotta be right down there for sure. Lost World and Amistad is like the only other one I can really come up with here. I find Amistad to be much more rewatchable than Tintin. I agree with that. Yeah. No. I mean, there's no no other choice. I guess Crystal Skull Tintin. Yeah. And then you go into War Horse, which was crazily nominated for Best Picture. 
so not that critically acclaimed, but was but got six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It got some really rave reviews. There's a lot like I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes and looking at Wikipedia. There's a lot of like five star, four star reviews for this movie. So people who liked it really sort of liked it. Right, and it, I, I kind of get it. I don't love it, but I get why some people do. There's something lovable about this film for certain people. Well, <laughs> okay, not, I'm not one of them, but I I respect this movie. Look, there's horse in the title. <laughs> This movie is about a fucking horse. It is. And I don't give half a shit about <laughs> horses or this horse or any horse. But we do know that there are horse people out there. Certainly. A small contingent of the population. But proud. But proud and they fucking love their horses. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's who this movie is for, I guess. Sure. He had never made a World War One movie at, up to this point. He'd made plenty of World War II films. He hadn't made his Civil War movie yet. Yeah. So you kind of get the impression that in addition to just being really obsessed with this play, and the play was the the hot thing that year in art, yeah. um, that he's like, all right, well, I'm the guy who can make this happen. I love this material, and I really want to make my John Ford World War One movie. That's what I'm going to do, because I can. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can get this done. And he did. And it made money, and it got nominated for Best Picture, and that's that. And <laughs> it's a movie that nobody cares about revisiting, nobody yeah. ever talks about. Yeah, so can we move on? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, there's not a lot to talk about. It, it does feel like his, really his love letter to John Ford, yeah. who's obviously, along with David Lean, probably his biggest influence, his hero, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shots that would be like a good screensaver. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's yeah. like a lot of really beautiful panoramic shots here in the English countryside. And I read it's, it's, all, it's all shot on film. Like there's no... Uh, there's three very small instances of CGI in the entire movie. Well, not counting the CG horse stuff, right? Because like when the horse gets wrapped up in the in the barbed wire and stuff, that's all He's CG a, and like animatronic stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. There's like one. Yeah, I think that specific okay. shot. But I think right. when you see like a horse like jumping over like a trench or whatever, yeah. I think that's a CG horse. I don't think so. No, I think it's a real horse. Well, I know that the movie was I think famous. It's the horse, <laughs> well, the war horse. I know that the movie was famous for like. Adhering to like PETA rules, yeah. more so than like any film had been up to that point. They were like very committed to the idea that they would not put an animal in danger. So I think that they relied more on the CG stuff than we probably did. That did. happen. Was this concurrent with the HBO show? Oh, Luck, Luck. Michael Mann. Yeah, this might be after that actually. So this might be a reaction to that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. But your point is well taken. This is the this is the anti Tintin in a lot of ways. Sure. In that it's like very committed to being ground level, to mm-hmm. being you know like you said, shot on film and and you know shot at Magic Hour and um, yeah, there's it feels very very old fashioned, which is what he was going for. Yeah, and it's. It's a, it's a weird movie. To me, it comes off as extremely bland, pretty episodic. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like, maybe his most episodic yeah. movie, right? It literally just, like, moves from thing, thing we're following owner to owner to owner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like the, yeah, exactly, the gun. You mentioned it's a World War One movie. I guess. Um, World War One was a brutal, brutal, bloody, horrible, devastating war. Yeah. And this is a non Relatively bloodless. Bloodless yeah. PG movie. There is gas. At some point, they get gassed. And I always yeah. think of World War one is being a gas and trench war and there's both of those things and lots of barbed wire there's some barbed wire yeah very barbed wire war uh but yes relatively it's a pg-13 movie yeah you know and it's about a horse it's about loving a horse it is everybody loves this horse wants to get it on with this horse very much so (laughs) 
And maybe nobody more so than Toby Kebbell, yeah. who's the one who actually frees the horse from the um, from the barbed wire, and he yeah. and the German come together in No Man's Land, and the movie really like puts its cards on the table during that scene, right? Um, Hiddleston, Tom Hiddleston is wonderful. Yeah, it, well, we no one's have, ever been more handsome than get, Hiddleston is in this movie. We get Loki and Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange, yes, both on horses in this movie. Cumberbatch, he's great. You know who the highest billed person is in this movie? Who gets top billing in War Horse? It's oh. not Hiddleston or Cumberbatch. Is it the horse? <laughs> no. Well, depending on how you look at it, it's Emily Watson. Oh. She's the top billed Depending on how you look at it, you said oh, Emily Watson. No, Emily oh, Watson. I'm not saying Emily Watson looks like a horse. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's like, what a bird. No, no, no. Emily Watson is the top billed. She is the biggest movie star She's in this the, movie. Yeah, at the time, she, at the was, time she, she was. was the biggest movie star. That's crazy. Um, Hiddleston and Cumberbatch show up. They're both great. Um, this guy, Niels Astrup, who was just coming off of uh, A Prophet. Yeah. He shows up as grandpa and he gives this completely ridiculous speech that when you really break it down, it's like completely incomprehensible. Yeah, right. It's great for a trailer, but if you really like break down what he's talking about, why can't the pigeons look down? I mean, it sounds beautiful because his voice is so, yeah. uh, you know, textured, uh-huh. but it's a silly speech. Who yeah. else have we got? Yeah, I mean, David Thewlis. David Thewlis shows up. He's pretty fun. Eddie Marson shows up. Toby Kebbell. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a fun little revolving door of British character actors. It's crazy that seven years ago... Liam Cunningham from yeah. uh, Game of Thrones, he shows up. It's crazy that Cumberbatch wasn't like a... like. Seven years ago, he wasn't like a huge name. I mean, I think he was on the precipice, yeah, right? Yeah, he was working but, his way. Because this is this is after Atonement. And that was yeah. the first time I remember seeing him being like, that guy's got that something. Guy, something guys. going on with that guy. <laughs> he's playing a real creep in that movie. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, he's, he's making this period piece, and he's peopling it with all these incredible character actors. And it seems like that kind of feeds into his next film, mm-hmm. which might be the greatest ensemble he's ever put together right like cast, casting ensemble he's ever put together. yes lincoln has does not have a lot of great female roles in it sally field is obviously a standout she was oscar nominated for her work but i will Gloria give rubens is good Gloria rubens is very good <clears throat> i will give the movie just a little bit of leeway though just considering the subject matter right oh of course of yeah. course yeah yeah no I, i'm not uh, i mean if, if it was a uh, bigger portrait of his life in general yeah. then maybe it would have deserved more female characters but this is a very specific procedural about you know a, a place and time so in that regard it really shouldn't be called lincoln right <laughs> the name of this movie is lincoln and yet it's not a biopic necessarily it's about a very it's about the passing of the 13th amendment mm-hmm. and in that regard i find the uh i find the title to be a little bit reductive and a little misleading well counterpoint okay is the i think we should give this movie credit for being an atypical biopic okay right mm-hmm. um because while it is a procedural about the passing of the 13th amendment it also gives us a really good insight, probably the best insight, into Abraham Lincoln's character and who he is, right? Okay. Like, this is the kind of biopic I want to see more of and I like to see, where you take a very thin slice of someone's life, an important part of their life, and, uh, you know, you shine a light on who exactly they are through their most important actions or whatever. It's kind of like how um, the Martin Luther King movie... Selma, yeah. Selma, thank you. Yeah, but... But I like the fact that that movie is called Selma, even sure. though it is, in its own way, kind of a biopic about MLK. Because yeah. it's focusing on a really specific I mean, chapter I, of his life. I see what you're saying, and it, it makes sense to be like, well, you're sort of taking away the thunder of the fact that this movie is about ending slavery and following up the Emancipation Proclamation at mm-hmm. the end of the Civil War. So, I, I don't know, I can see it both ways. I think it... Commercially, it makes sense to call it Lincoln, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> the guys on the... I, I know I invoke the Blank Check podcast all the time because, A, it's one of my favorite podcasts, and B, they cover a lot of the same ground as we do because they do oeuvre things as well. Mm-hmm. And those guys... 
those guys were talking about Lincoln a couple years ago and how a straightforward, more traditional Lincoln movie would have been like it opens in Illinois in this um, barn where this this boy is, you know, this child is born and then somebody puts a stovepipe hat yeah. on the baby and they're like, oh, isn't this baby presidential? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's not that movie. That's not the movie Spielberg wanted to make. And um, he walks by the local haberdashery every yes, day. He's like, hmm, look at that family. hat. <laughs> yeah, that's not the movie he wanted to make, and that's great. Uh, but I also think that this pro- this was like a long gestating project where he knew he loved Lincoln, knew he wanted to make a movie about Lincoln, didn't know exactly how he wanted to focus on the character, and so he happens upon this this book. Right, uh, I was going to say League of Shadows. It's called uh, a Band of Outsiders. It's called. Uh, I can look it up. Yeah, it's he comes upon this this book that really focuses on this one specific chapter of his life, or contemporaneously with the end of the Civil War, mm-hmm. and like that seems to be the team of rivals. Team of rivals. Thank you. And uh, Good Goodwin is it? Is that her name? The author Kearns Goodwin. Yeah, yeah, Goodwin. So he's like, ah, this is the missing piece of the puzzle. This is what we should be focusing on. Let's get my boy Kushner in there. Mm-hmm. And Kushner spends years. Well, John Logan initially was writing the script, and okay. he, he focused on Lincoln's friendship with Frederick Douglass. Interesting. Uh, then we had another rewrite by a playwright, and then eventually Tony Kushner comes in and right. uh, knocks it out of the park. Yeah, knocks out of the park. As he is wont to do. And, uh, and this movie really becomes very much a character-centric. I mean, in a lot of ways, it does feel like a play. Mm-hmm. There are scenes in this movie that seem that would 100% work on the stage. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it's not really particularly interested in the Civil War in terms of, like, the boots on the ground. I mean, there's one battle sequence, and the, the, it's the opening yeah. sequence of the film, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. It's like the first and last time you see somebody battling it out in the mud. In the mud, and, and and that's great. We've seen that kind of Civil War movie. Right, we know he can do that. He's not interested in doing that this time around. Yeah, and Spielberg, uh, to his credit, kind of gets out of the way of Tony Kushner's screenplay yes. in this movie. Yes, which is uh, which is awesome. It's exciting in its own way. I mean, it feels like the best episode of The West Wing or something. Like, it's, sure. it's really fun. Because it's a prologue to The West Wing. I mean, I mean, it, it, <laughs> or a, it, a prequel, rather, to The West Wing. It, it's crazy how specific and incisive it is about, like, getting these specific number of votes, and we know exactly who we need these votes from. So, so how do we... How do we get there, and how we convince them, and who are the who are the players, and like the ensemble cast, like you mentioned, is absolutely fucking insane. I mean, yeah. we have a uh, yeah. I'm gonna go through it. Yeah. DDL. Yeah. That'd be Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. I know. TLJ. <laughs> yeah. That'd be Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> JGL. Uh, JEH. John Hawks? No, JGH is or JEH rather. Oh, damn, I should have given myself. I should have given myself clues here. <laughs> oh, you wrote down. I just wrote down JEH. Oh. Okay. Anyway, uh, Sally Field. Yeah. David Strathairn. Yeah. Spader. Yeah. Holbrook. John Hawks. Yeah. Bruce McGill. Yeah. Jared Harris. Lee Pace. Peter McRobbie. Yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg. Walton Goggins. Bill Camp. Yeah. Coleman Domingo. David Oyo. The aforementioned David Oyelowo. Yeah. Lucas Haas and Dane DeHaan I know, as good. the Lincoln fanboys. It's nuts. It's pretty insane. Tim Blake Nelson, that, Tim that's Nelson, TBN. Yeah. Oh, Jackie Earl Haley. That's J.E.H. J.E.H. is Jackie Earl Haley, yeah. As a real creepy confederate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Vice President Alex Stevens. There was a rumor that Harrison Ford had been hired to come in and play the vice president. Jack? I want to say who was Lincoln's vice president that should be relatively easy to find apparently they were thinking of having Harrison Ford just like come in for a day and just do like a little cameo because that's the only character who doesn't like 
they don't they don't mention him. No. He never shows up. I mean, he basically doesn't exist. Yeah. It's kind of like the anti-vice, uh, right? Yeah. It's the opposite of, of the vice situation. Uh-huh. So that would have been kind of interesting, but I think ultimately they decided that was sort of a distraction because besides Daniel Day-Lewis and Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Sally Field, the rest of these are like died in the wool character actors mm. like and guys Andrew Johnson Johnson not Jackson yeah. yeah these these are these are like these guys fucking can wear a beard right yeah, yeah. these are character actors all and they're uniformly fantastic particularly Spader so, Hawks and um, Tim, Blake Tim Blake Nelson who just god they're having a lot of fun they're having yeah Spader especially yeah. Is like it's kind of crazy he doesn't he didn't get a sporting actor nod it makes sense that Tommy Lee Jones because Tommy Lee Jones has these just he's got the big, eloquent yeah. insane speeches throughout the movie and, yeah. I mean, and he is spectacular and, and given what this role is is asking He's like the, he's the perfect guy to play this old progressive curmudgeon. Yeah, Kushner must have just been like salivating while he was writing. Though, can you imagine yeah. Kushner? I mean, he probably had to replace his keyboard. He mm-hmm. was salivating so much over those speeches that he was writing. Yeah, and it's you know I, I watched it. Uh, my girlfriend had never seen it because the title Lincoln makes you assume it's going to be this biopic, and yep. no one wants to watch this fucking historical biopic. Right. But her big comment was like, I didn't think it was going to be that funny. Right, very funny, and very it, entertaining. It's just it's just entertaining throughout, and you wouldn't expect it. And I remember coming out of the theater being like just invigorated by how, it, and it's never in a cheap way. It never feels like it undercuts the message or the importance of what's going on here. But just the sort of back and forths in the, you know, in, in the capital are, uh, and it's, it's all. I mean, Kushner deserves most of the credit here. Yeah, yeah, it's his. It's he and Daniel Day Lewis. I really think it's their movie. Oh, yeah. And when it goes without saying that Daniel Lewis, of course, he's the best person to ever do the thing that he's famous for doing. He's doing all the acting in this movie. He's he's doing every bit of the possible <laughs> acting. And um, I agree. When Spielberg gets out of the way, the movie is at its best. And yet he still is the guy uniquely suited to making these kinds of things entertaining. Right? Like yeah. I'm always going back to the fact that he manages to find entertainment value in things that on paper would seem to be. Heavy or boring or innocuous. Yeah, the, the the great example being Schindler's List. I would say. Exactly. Of course, that's the ultimate example. Yeah. That being said, when he allows some of his Spielbergness to creep into this thing, mm-hmm. when he allows some of his cloying Spielbergness is to creep in, the movie kind of falters. And I'll, I'll particularly point to like the last ten minutes of the movie, sure. where it totally loses its way. It doesn't ruin the film, but this movie should have been kind of a uh, front-to-back masterpiece. I agree that the it runs out of steam and just really should have stuck the landing yeah. after basically Tommy Lee Jones gets in bed or whatever. But then yeah. it wouldn't be Lincoln, right? Or Jared Harris and Daniel Day-Lewis on the porch like the Appomattox yes. Courthouse or whatever, right? Yes. That would have worked for me as well. This movie's biggest failing is that it takes it all the way to the um, to the assassination. Yes. And it really falters there. Like, it just seems to not be able to add anything new to the conversation. I mean, and you have to assume that Tony Kushner wrote this in the screenplay, well, but maybe... It feels a little bit like a Spielberg. Like, like asked for yeah, it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been pretty powerful to, like, you know, the amendment passes, and then you have a title card that says... Lincoln would be shot dead in Ford Theater 28 days later right. or three months later or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and we could have, yeah, been in and out and that would have been way more satisfying. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, the clear climax, obviously, is the passing of the amendment and everyone's happy and blah, blah, blah. Which um, all works. It's all moving. It's all fun. It's all exciting. Yeah. You know, I like the Appomattox Courthouse stuff. I like he and Sally Field talking about taking a trip to the Holy Land or whatever. But I'm not crazy about him going to Ford Theater. I'm not crazy about the weird 
sort of misguided bait and switch yes. with by going to the wrong theater yeah. <laughs> where it's like what i mean well, I, we don't need yeah we don't need that. i'm sure they thought that was incredibly clever it's it's actually just sort of distracting um and then all of them gathered around his body and and pronouncing him dead and then this really really cloying final speech that daniel day lewis gives which just yeah spielberg's worst impulses kind of yeah personified right yeah and you wonder how much they talked about how they wanted to end this movie and you know maybe that was part of the bargaining with the studio, or but you have to assume Spielberg has has all the power here. But I guess if you're going to name a movie Lincoln, you have to end with him being assassinated. I mean that is just so part and parcel to the Lincoln mythos or whoever yeah. Lincoln is. But the point they're making is that he passed the amendment, and then he was immediately assassinated. Right? I get that. Yeah, I get that. That. But it, again, this doesn't feel like a traditional biopic, which to me means you don't need to end it in the traditional yes. biopic way where you actually see the death. Absolutely. Of this person, right? I think it would have been more powerful if we really just stuck to our stuck to our guns on this thing. The movie ends up being this huge hit. <laughs> it's kind of like unexpected hit. Yeah. Uh, $275 million on a $65 million budget. Le- legitimate hit. 12 Oscar nominations. And I seem to remember in 2012, it was the front runner. It was the kind of just de facto front Like, oh, Spielberg made a Lincoln movie. Everybody seems to like it. Daniel Day-Lewis is great as always. I guess it's the front. I guess it's going to win. What's it going to be? Life of Pi? Yeah. You know? And then slowly but surely, it just sort of like softened and softened and softened to the point that Argo just snuck in there. Argo. For some reason. And I don't. I like Argo and I like Lincoln. And I'm not saying one's better than the other. Yeah. I just think it's this movie on paper is so the quintessential Oscar frontrunner movie. <laughs> and yet I do think that it is. there is enough issues that I have with it where I'm actually kind of glad that it didn't win Best Picture. Yeah, I think it's fine. I think it, it would have been a way more cliche victory than uh, Argo. Argo's kind of funny that it won and yeah. it's kind of cool that Ben Affleck directed a Best Picture winner. And, yeah. you know, we'll and it's look- a weird piece of trivia that he wasn't nominated for director yeah. in the film. I mean, people Picture. will look back in 40 years and be like, Argo? What yeah. the fuck? And they'll watch it and be like, oh, this is a good movie. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with Lincoln just being its own thing and not having that best picture stamp uh, tied to it because again if it wins best picture maybe we're looking back and saying well that's kind of overrated lesser best yeah, yeah lesser best picture winner but it does sort of lead into where we're going to go next which is him kind of like finding his footing a little bit and being like ah this is this is the kind of director I'm going to be I'm I'm Frank Capra now right <laughs> this is the kind of guy I'm going to be now for yeah. at least for a couple of films because we're going to go right into Bridge of Spies and The Post and uh to me, Lincoln represents him like kind of proving himself yet again. <laughs> Not that he needs to; his legacy is intact. But yeah. uh, King of the Crystal Skull, Tintin, and Warhorse to me are indications of a floundering artist who might be experimenting, but also is kind of trying to define himself at this point of his career. And Lincoln is like, ah, finding that right lane again. Yeah, and this is yeah, who I am now. Yeah, and you know, we think so highly of Steven Spielberg, and he's set such a you know, high bar that we can say War Horse is Lesser Spielberg, even though it was a Best Picture nominee yes, and yes. sort of universally beloved, forgotten, but beloved. Um, interestingly enough, Tony Kushner is writing the screenplay for West Side Story. Yes. Which is... Bodes well. Which bodes well, mm-hmm. which actually is the only reason I'm going to get anywhere close to excited about it, even though Ansel Elgort's in it. And not <laughs> well, that and, and that's based on uh, the strength of Baby Driver, I guess, so it just... I guess it's more proof that Spielberg is an Edgar Wright guy. Yeah, he's, he loves, he's, Edgar, he loves Wright. Edgar Wright. Jesus Christ, that's <laughs> probably true. I mean, any final thoughts before we uh, go back to the cave and watch the seventh age of Spielberg? <laughs> no, I mean, we're post-DreamWorks now, and I think we're through this kind of rough patch. I, I got to say, I was somewhat dreading this episode, but 
as is always the case, you know, you make it so much more exciting and interesting <laughs> than I ever expected to be. So uh, thanks for weathering this particular storm with me, because because there were some there were some rough ones this time around, and we, we did it. We got through. We got through it, and we never have to watch uh, Crystal Skull again, <laughs> and I will never have to watch War Horse again, which I am very excited about. Fair enough. All right, you did it. You put the, you put in the time and the work, and I, I appreciate you. Until next time, it's a movie like movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. Hey everybody, Matt here with a quick, friendly, and humble request. As we round the corner into our ninth year on the way to a decade of We Like Movies and closing in on 300 episodes, we thought it might be a good time to talk about donations. If you felt so inclined, perhaps consider visiting the donation page at www.welikemovies.com and help us out with a small ovation. Anything you'd be willing to contribute would help us offset the cost of seeing upwards of 100 movies in theaters per year, as well as the expense of maintaining the site. We're not looking to get rich off this podcast, and we certainly don't do it for the money. But any assistance you'd be willing to provide certainly lessens the financial strain of producing the content we're committed to providing you with. Thank you so much for your continued patronage. 2019 is going to be our biggest year yet, and we're so excited to have you with us. Thanks again.